Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and this is episode 22. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For our case segment, we will discuss Shelby County versus Holder, the case that held that Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act exceeded congressional authority under the 14th and 15th Amendments. For our current events segment, we'll discuss Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process. For our deep thoughts segment, we'll share our thoughts on the film Sorry to Bother You. But before we do any of that, I want to do a quick check-in. So Yvette, how are you doing? How's Arizona going? How's life out there? I'm adjusting to life better here than I was the first two weeks that I moved here. I experienced a lot of culture shock when I first moved here. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing things like drive-through liquor stores. Like, there's a drive-through <laughs> liquor store that also sends that also sells guns and bullets. Like, you don't even have to get out of your car to buy a gun. That's and so wild. Trump stickers everywhere. <laughs> I know. I was like, where am I? This is a dystopic future. Uh, and. But I think I've been hanging out with my coworkers outside of work, and they're really cool, really dope, really rad. And I've been exploring more of Tucson, and I think I really appreciate the Latinx community here, the immigrant community here, and how vibrant they are and how much they resist Border Patrol, ICE, policing. And the I really love all the Mexican food I've been eating, too. It's really delicious. I think um, I'm finding yeah, my yeah. place here more um and then also like the reason I moved here is my job and I've been loving that it's really stressful it's really hard but uh because my team was understaffed when I first got here I've been thrown onto big projects right away even though I'm a law grad and technically not even barred yet Mm -hmm. but I'm already working on an appeal at the board of immigration appeals and I'm working on an opposition motion because DHS is trying to reopen someone's asylum case to take it take their asylum away Um, And I'm second chairing a Franco case. Um, Franco is the case that said that folks with mental disabilities are uh, required to have government appointed counsel in their removal proceedings. Um, And so and it's the first time I've ever worked on a case like that. So I'm just feeling really excited and fulfilled. And yes, the job is really stressful. Yes, the job is really emotionally taxing. But I I love it. And so I'm, I'm doing a lot better now. It's so nice to hear that because, like, I can hear the excitement in your voice, you know, and, like, it's nice these moments, like, I wish, like, you could tell this to yourself, like, two years ago, you know, like, when we were just, like, in the middle of law school and, like, just really struggling to get through the day-to-day of it and just, Mm -hmm. like, I think Mm -hmm. we always had the, we, I still, because I'm not bored yet, but, like, or graduated, like, still have the end goal in sight, but just, like, if like having that reaffirmation like yes you will get to do work that's super fulfilling that was just like it's so nice to have you know yeah and I think I I would have really needed that I did really need that two years ago because I just would have had so much clarity because that first Mm -hmm. year you're just inundated with so much random arbitrary pressure to do a clerkship to get a prestigious internship to go into the corporate world and see what that's like and it's mm-hmm. like, it was just really disorienting and I think for a bit I did lose sight of what I wanted to do not for too long obviously yeah <laughs> but but like it's still really difficult to go through a disorienting period of your life even if it was only for like a few months or half a year so but it worked out 
Yeah, it did. And it's working out. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. How are you, Cynthia? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm here in Nashville. I think I'm like still settling in. Uh, I've been like yeah. the last two nights, I've been like, okay, I'm going to finally unpack because I'm like at the end of week two of being here. And I just like yeah. kept falling asleep at like 9.30 p.m., which like for people who know me, I I only usually get like six, seven hours of sleep because that's like what works for me. And so I'm usually like in bed at like Cynthia. one and up by seven. Uh, and then like these last two nights, I've just been in bed at 930 and don't wake up until seven. Um, and I'm just like, damn, I've been exhausted. But I feel like I've been exhausted for really good reasons. Like I last Friday, like just the New York Times, like news alerts were coming through my phone about Kavanaugh and the process and like who was voting how and things like that. And I was just like, I was at lunch with my um, friend who's also doing an internship here in Nashville from, and she, we knew each other from Stanford. We did a clinic together and I was mm-hmm. just like, I was like kidding. I was just like, Hey, we should drive out to DC and protest. I was like, you know, like leave after work. And she was just like, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm kind of kidding. And she was just like, wait, no, yes, I'm down. And I was just like, wait, really? And she's like, yeah, let's do it. And so I was like, okay. I love friends like that. Yeah. You know, the ones like- that encourage you to do spontaneous things exactly and like she was just like this is important I was like yes it's important she's just like it's meaningful to protest I was like yes it's meaningful to protest and so we were just like on the same like wavelength so we literally like got off work that day like we each went home and showered like packed a few things and then like got on the road like we stopped to sleep like two hours at a rest stop like somewhere in Virginia and then like just kept driving I know. Was and that scary? Just, were you like, where are the races? Are they in the bushes? <laughs> no, I like, like there was a lot of cars. Well, not a lot of cars, but there were cars. So I wasn't as nervous. And it was like the hours, like I was able to drive until like about um, 5 a.m., 4 a.m. And so then like when we slept, it was like when we woke up, like the sun was starting to rise. So I didn't feel like it wasn't oh, like okay. in the dead, dead of night. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so then we drove, and we got into D.C. like 8.30 a.m. We, like, bought poster paper and markers. We made our posters. We, like, my friend, she's so dope. She let us stay at her house, like, within less than 24 hours' notice. Um, We dropped off her stuff. We walked to the Capitol, and then, like, we're just protesting the rest of the day. And then, like, the next day on Sunday, we drove back. And, like, not only was it nice to protest, and, like, we can talk more in one of our later segments about, like, protesting and, like, the value of it, but I wanted – like, it was just so, so nice to see myself doing these things because I felt so free. And, like, I know I have a lot of privilege, right? Like, I have a car that I have out here with me, and I was able to, like, mm-hmm. pay for gas. And I had friends in D.C. because I've lived in so many places yeah. that I, like, have friends in D.C. And, like, was able to stay for free. But I was just, like, reflecting on the weekend and my life here in Nashville. And I'm just, like, this is who I hoped I'd be. Like, I am the woman I dreamed about, you know? Like just radical and free and like yelling at Nazis and you know just like like my life like I'm just so happy with it and I'm like I don't know it just like it was just super meaningful to me to see like see myself in the mirror and be just so proud of the person I saw like it just I don't know it's just been nice to sit in this emotion for the last week oh I love that there were Nazis there at the protest Oh, my God. Yes. There were so many like Trump supporters and there were so many people. That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And I was wearing um, like an abolish ice and like abolish DHS. Oh, right. Oh, my gosh. Did people say stuff? 
Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people took a picture of it. And I was just like, thought he organizer. And I had a sign, though, that said, stop giving power to white men. And so, like, white men, especially when I was just, like, walking around D.C. to, like, get food and stuff, like, white men kept, like, noticing and telling me stuff or, like, signaling things at me. And so a bunch of the Trump, um, like, supporters who were there, uh, they were, like, okay, uh, sorry, this is going to take a while, but let me explain. So there were, like, Trump supporters there, and then there was the protesters. And then there was a bunch of, like, white allies, which I was very pleased about, who were, like, formed, like, a line slash, like, a human wall between, like, the Trump supporters and the protesters. And they were just, like... That's what had... they should be doing. Yeah, exactly. And they had, like, their backs to the Trump supporters, and they were, like, amongst themselves were just, like, we're not going to engage them. They want us to, like, like fight. You know, they want to, like, rile us up, and we're not going to do that. We're just going to have our backs to them and block them off from everybody else that's here. So that was really nice. But I was, clear, like, standing in front of them, like, chanting with other people who were chanting, who were mostly people of color, like different things right about like trump and like all this stuff so because of my sign a bunch of people like of the trump supporters they were taking pictures of me and so i just like started oh, flipping no. them. yeah i just started flipping them off and so because i was just like you're gonna take pictures of me like okay take pictures of me i'm flipping you off cynthia you should be careful because the alt-right people try and dox protesters that they see like they'll take pictures to try and figure out what your identity is yeah i guess I'm sure you'll be fine, but I'm just saying for whoever might be listening, like, that's why a lot of times, like, if you do see people taking your picture, feel free to cover your face. I, yeah, I just, I feel safe and maybe it's misguided, but I do feel like I'm a person who has a lot of privilege, you know, like, I am Latina, I am, like, first generation, and, but, like, I also have a ton of privilege. I've had white friends that are doxxed, that's why, by these neo-Nazis. Like, I had a friend who went out to the Berkeley protest when the Nazis came into town, and they were doxxed on Twitter, like, send, you know, sent hateful messages. Yeah. It's it's a practice that's happening, because this was brought up at the NLG conference, too, that um, doxxing has become one of their new tactics for scaring people. Yeah, and I guess they could scare me, but I don't know. I feel fine right now. If I ever feel like a concern, I w- but yeah, I know. I, maybe I should be, more, maybe I'm ready to high. I don't know. But yes. So, well, I mean, they were taking pictures of me and I'm like, I'm not going to turn around. I'm at a protest. Like I'm voicing my opinions. You know, I would have felt very disempowering to do that. Um, and that's no, the opposite yeah. of how I wanted to feel in the moment. And so they were, yeah, so mm-hmm. they started taking pictures of me. So I started flipping them off. And so a bunch of them started throwing up the white power sign. And that's when a bunch of like, the people who were on the side, like my side, who were like around me, they we started taking pictures of them throwing up the white power sign because it was a bunch of people. They just started throwing it up. So like they weren't wearing like KKK things or like Nazi things or anything like that, but they were like very much white supremacists. So I kind of equate all of them. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do. So yeah, and so that that's my little story. That's what happened. <laughs> Dang, it's intense. I mean, I had a really good time, like, chanting, I met some dope-ass people, like, made some cool connections with people, like, just got to, like, be in community with people who felt similarly, and there were people there who were, like, asking me about my shirt, like, oh, what do you mean, you know, and, like, just have being able to, like, see that, like, was nice. So, yeah. Yeah, it's cool, because protests like that can draw people from a wide spectrum of politics, so... Maybe, like, there was a lot of, maybe there was, like, a Hillary Democrat who hadn't thought about abolishing ICE or abolishing prisons, and your shirt was able to start a conversation about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't have a full conversation with people, but I could see that they were, like, 
they were looking, they were reading, and then they would like look at me questioningly, and then they were just like kind of like, hmm, okay, kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, there's I think for so many people, like the concept of abolishing police has never even crossed their mind. So even just being introduced to the idea is a step forward. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so there were police arresting people there. And so my friend Becky and I were, like, trying to observe them as much as possible because we emailed NLG and we're like, do you need legal observers? And they were like, we have enough. But I didn't see anybody with the green hats on. So we were confused. So we were just like, okay, we can't, like, technically observe, but we're going to observe police as much as possible. Like, we literally, like, when we saw police running, we were running after them, like, to figure out why they were running, like, for what. And so at some point, like, we were just, her and I were, like, up against the barricades. And, like, I was just standing there, like, they were just staring at me. I could see them reading my shirt and I was just like yeah I I mean you I don't want you here and it was just so yeah it was a it's a good weekend and I actually us. met someone who's like one of our listeners and that was so dope she like came up to me she's oh. like yeah she's like are you Cynthia or are you Yvette I was like I'm Cynthia hello <laughs> wait how did she know that you were a set of runner if she, didn't she know... recognized me and then I, I was posting that oh I was but there. she didn't remember your name she but she mm-hmm. knew your face mm-hmm Actually, one of my coworkers recognized me too on my first day of work. He came up. Well, now he's my friend, Michael. He came up to me and he was like, "This is so weird, but do you do cerebronas?" And I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> I love it when people recognize us. That like truly makes my day, my week." Yes. So this was like okay. one of the longest check-ins we've ever done. So it's I think it's that's a good. good. One. We should have yeah. longer check-ins. Yeah. There's a lot uh, to talk about. Yes. Yes, there is. But let's get into Shelby County versus Holder. Um. So just to, like, introduce the case, well, okay, we should give some background, too. Like, okay, so the case was decided in 2013, so it's a very recent case, five years ago. But I want to introduce it in terms of just, like, how meaningful it was, because I know one of our classmates, and I won't say her name, but she, I've heard her share before how when they covered this, uh, this case in class, like, she cried, you know, she's like... Um, This like really impacted her and like she's like a black woman and like the Voting Rights Act was very meaningful and to like cover this case without any emotion like was it would have been ingenuine and like I I remember covering it in our class in 14th Amendment I think or maybe it was in my other class. She was crying because she felt like it wasn't given enough importance in lecture. Yeah, and not just because, but just because of, like, the meaning of the Voting Rights Act, like, the context it was passed in, right? Like, what it was meant to fight against, right? And the progress and also lack of progress since then. And so to just talk about this case as in, like, oh, like, let's look at this federalism, like, voting rights, you know, kind of case, like, without putting it into the context and its meaningfulness, like, she felt like that couldn't happen. And so she she felt like she cried and she didn't want, like, she didn't police herself for that reaction she was just like no these kinds of cases you should cry like you should have this kind of reaction to them so i just wanted to like highlight that's so important because people think that lawyers are like the way to be a professional lawyer is to not show any emotion and i think that's bullshit and i think that's misogynistic because of the differences in how men and women are socialized to be able to display emotion and i love that she was like i'm not going to police myself like this means a lot to me personally and i'm going to show it yeah yeah, so that's the context of this case. Like, it's a, it's, we're going to go through all the law of it, and it's going to be very, very dry, but it's just, like, this is important. So let's get into it. So the different parties the, is... Oh, go yeah. ahead. Oh, sorry. Okay. Expl- no, uh, go the, ahead. Do the parties. Okay, so the parties were Shelby County in Alabama. They were the petitioner. The county was the petitioner. And they sued the U.S. Attorney General. 
And so there's lots of different facts and kind of law at play. And like the facts are really just the different law that's like in the background that this uh, the Voting Rights Act. So just starting with the Voting Rights Act, it was passed in 1965 and it was passed as a response to like historical racial discrimination in voting and like lots and lots of it. Right. And so I'm going to go through the relevant sections of it. So section two of the Voting Rights Act, VRA. It bans any standard practice or procedure that denies or burdens the right of any citizen to vote on account of race um, or color. And Section 2 is not at issue in this case. It's in the background, so it's important to note, but it's not being, like, challenged in this case. Section 5, like, that contains the the language that it, like, in certain covered uh, jurisdictions, and jurisdictions just, like, meaning states, townships, or counties, No change in voting procedures can take effect until approved by specified federal authorities, specifically the attorney general or a three-judge panel of a D.C. district court, making sure that the change does not have the purpose or effect of negatively impacting any individual's right to vote based on race or minority status. And so this whole section and like this process is known as preclearance. And just as a reminder, again, these covered jurisdictions were the ones that had historical issues of voting discrimination based on race. Yes, exactly. So like Section 4, which defines who's covered in Section 5, what I just went over, it defines like those jurisdictions um, as like the ones that are going to be uncovered as those that maintain tests or devices as prerequisites to voting and had low, uh, low voter registration or turnout in the 1960s and early 1970s. And so this is like what's referred to as the formula of who needs preclearance. And so the states is included, um, includes Arizona, Alaska included. Of course. Alabama. I know, right? Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia. But I also want to note that it included counties from California, Florida, North Carolina, New York, South Dakota, and Michigan. And so like these tests that the law is talking about, it's the... It's like literacy and knowledge tests, good moral character requirements, or like needing a voucher from a registered voter, which is like just like grandfather clauses kind of thing. And so when they were first passed, the voting rights, VRA, (laughs) sections four and five were meant to expire in five years, but could be renewed. And so in 2006, they were renewed for an additional 25 years with the same formula. Okay, and then I'm just going to quickly go over the amendments because like... The case talks about them a lot, and so I just want to go remind folks what they are. So the 10th Amendment, also at play here, and it reserves to states all the powers not specifically granted to the federal government, including the power to regulate elections. And then tied to this, there's the principle of equal sovereignty between all the states. And this is also like in the Constitution's Article 4. And then the 14th Amendment, which we've talked a lot about, so every person's right to due process of law. And the 15th Amendment, which protects citizens from having their right to vote abridged or denied due to race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And it also gives Congress the power to enforce this right through legislation, a.k.a. legislation like the VRA. Okay, do you want to go over and the this issue historical or the context? Oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I will. And then also I'll just say that in regards to the 14th and 15th Amendment, really important historical context is that these amendments were passed post-Civil War and were meant to ameliorate all of the racial injustices that had led up to the Civil War. Exactly. The the issue in the case was whether or not the renewal of Section 5 
with the contra- with the constraints of Section 4B, which outlined which jurisdictions were going to be covered by the preclearance requirement, exceeded congressional authority under the 14th and 15th Amendments, and then therefore violated the 10th Amendment in Article 4 of the Constitution. The court held that Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional as written, but stated that Congress could rewrite or update the formula to be constitutional. And Ginsburg dissented and was joined by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Yeah, and so the test slash like the applied rule that the court seems to use is whether the statute's current burdens are justified by the current needs and like the disparate geographic coverage like whether that it must be sufficiently related to the problem that it targets. So I'll lay that out and we'll get back to this a lot because, okay, so the main opinion is written by Chief Justice Roberts. And the main point is that like the preclearance requirement was, quote, strong medicine and, quote, an extraordinary measure to address an as as extraordinary of a problem. But the conditions which this measure were passed to address are no longer the same. And so he has this language of the racial gap in voter registration and turnout was lower in their states originally covered by Section 5 than it was nationwide. And so basically he's saying that the the act, the VRA, imposes burdens that are not justified by current needs. The Chief Justice Roberts was trying to say that Section 4 imposes burdens that are no longer responsive to the current conditions in the voting districts in question. He was saying that it made sense in the 60s and 70s, but not now, and claimed, like Cynthia said, that voter turnout has significantly improved in the last 50 years, which is so funny thinking about the abysmal voter turnout in the presidential election in 2016. It's like this, I mean, that election happened prior to the decision of this case, but We've been having abysmal turnout for a long time, and it's like, how can anyone argue this with a straight face? And, you know, we have low turnout for presidential elections, and let's not even talk about midterm and local elections, which have crazy, crazy low turnout rates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. And, okay, so he also argues some other things that you can not get through without a, with a straight face. So he talks about federalism. They're, like, it's not explicitly like, oh, federalism, federalism, but that's what's that's what's happening here. That, you know, states have the power to regulate elections. And so there's all this bullshit language about the framers intent and how they didn't want to have the federal government always regulating like state action. And there's more language about the equal sovereignty among the states like our nation was and is a union of states, equal in power, dignity and authority. So that he's really taking issue with the fact that their state singled out. And like, I think they're just like, it's part of this residual feeling about like oh the south is so constantly attacked and like you know the south is just being put on blast again through this like vra but i'm just like "Eh, well you know like you made your bed the south like so it makes anyways but there's i think clearly that's weighing on so roberts and the other conservatives on the court are really really preoccupied with this idea of federalism and states rights and I think that it sounds like a neutral concept at first, like, oh, maybe it is important for states to be somewhat autonomous or to have power over deciding things that might be local in nature. But I think it's important to point out the historical context of these things because 
the federal so historically like efforts to curb for example racial discrimination have happened at the federal level which is a weird thing to try and picture in 2018 when trump is president and when where it's like states like california fighting against a racist federal government but that's actually kind of unprecedented because prior it was the federal government forcing the states to stop enacting racial discrimination so even though it seems like a neutral argument on its face with the historical context it's really about allowing states to enact racist misogynistic laws yeah and so getting into okay so like getting into how reasonable is like roberts and the rest of the majority like their reasoning so like to your point, so Robert starts off noting that for the first 100 years after the 15th Amendment, states consistently came up with ways to prevent African-Americans from voting and that the litigation against that hardly helped because as soon as one way was struck down, like states would come up with the states and local governments would come up with another way to discriminate. So it's frustrating that he's so that he thinks that like it's been 50 years already and that's too much time. Like so much has happened in 50 years, but it's like you recognize that this persisted for like the first hundred years and that's like not counting all the hundreds of years where it was just blatantly like not allowed you know so like his Mm -hmm. inability to like put like I feel like it takes longer to undo harm and discrimination than it does to like make do harm and discrimination so it's like if it took a if we had this for a hundred years and it was evolving for a hundred years like we should be trying to remedy this for the next 150 years at least you know so he doesn't take that perspective at all and then i also so section two of the vra why i mentioned it earlier so that provides a way for a state to no longer be um oh I didn't mention this earlier, but Section 2 also has a way for a state to no longer be covered by the requirement of preclearance. And so the way um, that you would no longer be subject to like this requirement where you have to get permission for everything is you need to not use one of the forbidden tests or device. And those have been like outlawed for many, many years. You need to have uh, not failed to receive preclearance on something. So if you are like, hey, I want to make this change, DOJ, like, is that okay? Like, and the DOJ is like, yeah, this is, that's fine. It's not going to have any like racial impact. Like you need to have every change have been approved like that, not have something failed because like, wait, no, we're not approving this because this is going to have an impact. Right. So that's one of the requirements. And then, uh, you can't have lost a section two lawsuit in the 10 years prior. And so like that, like if a state does all these three things, they can get off preclearance. They can no longer need to get anything approved. So it's like if a state can't pass these requirements, like honestly, clearly the preclearance is still necessary. So it's not it's unclear to me why the majority isn't satisfied with this. And it, yeah. yeah, it's really weird because it's like, oh, they're pointing to the fact that racial discrimination has improved, but it did so because of the mechanisms in place. So it's like, having a really good umbrella and being like oh it's not raining anymore it's like or we're not getting wet anymore and it's like well that's because there's an umbrella it's not because it stopped raining yes and that's my favorite line from Ginsburg's dissent uh yes exactly mm-hmm. and okay and so Robert's like I already said earlier they seem overly concerned aka using it as an excuse like with the burden on federalism and differentiating between the states like that just seemed so consistent throughout the opinion and I was just like this seems pretextual so pretextual I just I think it's funny that he's not concerned about 
checks and balances in the division of labor between the three branches because he points out himself that whenever uh, a lawsuit would strike down a, a law that restricted voting rights for people of color, a state would just come up with a new way, a new innovative way to create the same outcome of preventing people of color from voting. And so if the courts are an ineffective means of curbing this problem, why wouldn't you let Congress do that? Why wouldn't you let Congress pass a sweeping piece of legislation that would prevent issues from happening in the first place instead of allowing states to create laws and then having them dealt with on the back end through litigation? And I think that, like, this... I think that Ginsburg's argument in her dissent that this is a political problem that requires a political solution is a really important point. Like, actually, why is the court intervening in this in the first place? Like, if 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 the VRA is no longer necessary, that's an analysis that the that the legislation that the legislature should make the democratically appointed branch, not the court doesn't need to intervene and say that you've overstepped your bounds. Yeah. Yeah, and so getting to that, too, like, about how this is for Congress, so Roberts is so hung up on the fact that the act is renewed for 25 years when it was, like, originally written to last only five years, but I'm just like, it doesn't make any sense why you're concerned about that, because Congress isn't bound by precedent or original intent in the way that, like, the Supreme Court is, so, like, if Congress today wants to do something that's completely opposite from something they did yesterday— they get to do that as long as it's not unconstitutional. Like, I think there's some law about, oh, you know, like, they have to, like, make sure that they're, they have reasoning and it's not, you know, like, that their reasoning makes sense and is legitimate. But, like, they're allowed to do that. So if today they decide that they want to do for 25 more years what yesterday they thought they only wanted to do for five years, Congress can do that. The people who can't do that is the Supreme Court. Like, that, so it's just like, hello, these are different. Yeah, and I feel way more comfortable with the democratically accountable body to make a decision like that than the court. Yes. Okay, and then something else I had issue with is that they keep talking about, like, oh, there's record numbers of, like, like black voters and record numbers of, like, black office holders, you know, and in, in, like, in elected office. And they keep saying, like, oh, there's record numbers, record numbers. And I'm just like, that's such a flawed measure of like progress because of course everything is going to be a record right like if a hundred years ago you weren't allowed to do something like black people weren't allowed to run for office and now they are the when there's one it's going to be a record number when it's three it's going to be a record number when it's five it's going to be a record number but that tells you nothing about whether we've like reached like equity or equality right because it's like i don't care if there's record numbers i care of the is there equal by representation in the like in the demographics of a state are there you know are people of color like represented based on that number and until it's like that reaches parity like I don't I'm not very impressed that there's record numbers that tells me very little yeah and again I think this just bolsters the argument that we were making earlier where it's like you're talking about the success of the VRA like the things that the record numbers of POC who are elected into office, the record number of increase in voting turnout is a direct result of the Voting Rights Act. And so you're using the success of the act as an argument for why it should be repealed. And 
like I just you know like I think that Ginsburg laid out a bunch of really important examples in her dissent of the types of things that would be allowed to be in place for a certain amount of time until somebody brings a lawsuit to strike it down like she talked about a Texas law that straight up didn't allow black voters to participate in primary elections and like I think that the that the preventive aspect of the Voting Rights Act is really critical because if we are to, you know, I have feelings about democracy as it stands now, but like if we are going to strive towards this ideal of democracy, then voting should be the most sacred thing that can't be fucked with. And so like we like the preventive aspect of it where you, they require preclearance before laws are enacted makes so much sense to me because irreparable damage is made when somebody is prevented from voting like if if we are to really call ourselves a democracy then we really need to have free and open access to voting so like even if to me it would be a failure even if let's say that texas law was allowed to to be put in place and a year or two later it was struck down any number of people that weren't allowed to vote in primaries would be a tragedy of ir- and would create irreparable harm because yeah. that is how important voting is. Like, even if eventually it's, t- it's overturned via litigation, that's not enough for me. For me, it needs to not be allowed to happen at all in the first place. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you. And, um, and like, the, like, it's not like the, like, it's like the VRA really has been the only mechanism that's proven to be adequate like the in the past the attorney general was also given power to intervene to seek injunctions against public and private interference in voting but the Ginsburg points out that those suits are really onerous to prepare like I think and I think this will be important also when we talk about Brett Kavanaugh later and whether or not the Supreme Court is a body that we should even trust to to like enforce our rights or create Mm -hmm. rights for us or make us free because like litigation is slow as fuck (laughs) and like you know it's like it's unrealistic to think that we have the resources and time to strike down every single discriminatory law before it takes effect. Yeah. Um, and be- because the right is fundamental, we should be, there should be preventive measures in place. And um, I brought up the historical context of the 14th and 15th amendments up earlier because the VRA is supposed to fulfill the promise of those amendments that were passed post civil war. They're still relevant today. Yeah, I completely agree. So I think we should go to Thomas's concurrence and Ginsburg's dissent. But before we do, just like on Robert's opinion, I just I was reading this language and I just literally just busted out laughing. So he writes because he's talking about, um, okay, whatever. I'll just say what he says. So but that is like saying that a driver pulled over pursuant to a policy of stopping all redheads cannot explain, cannot complain about that policy if it turns out his license has expired. And so the context of it doesn't matter, but the fact that he uses that example just like had me dying, given like what they decided in Strief, Strife, Strief, in which you can like be illegally detained, right? So like the police can stop you without a good reason, which would be illegal. But if you have a warrant out for you and they figure that out afterwards, it's all good. So it's like, how can you <laughs> like literally, <laughs> Robert's your example is trash because that's literally how policing works in this country. So I just like, uh, I was just their narrow tunnel vision is sometimes at, like astounding, and so I just wanted to point that out in case anybody else finds That's that such amusing. a false analogy. Because redheads don't have a history of discriminating against people of color trying to vote. 
How does that analogy make sense? Like he's trying to analogize redheads to states that have a history of voting discrimination. Yeah. It'd be like a proper analogy would be like stopping all redheads with a history of traffic violations. Which like I would still have issue with. But like I'm I'm just saying like the analogy as he wrote it does isn't a good one or an accurate one. It's misleading. Yeah, no, but it's also funny because even this misleading analogy of yours, like, actually, that's that's how it works here in the United States. Like, yeah, you can't, you know, have the fruits of the illegal detention suppressed because, which is, yeah. Anyways, I think I've belabored the point. So do you want to like tell us? not familiar with its own precedent. But, yeah, I did want to talk about the Thomas concurrence um, because... <laughs> He's so extra. He wrote separately just to say he would also find Section 5 unconstitutional, not just the parameters of Section 4. And so he I, he just wanted to say that because he claimed that the blatant discrimination that Section 5 intended to ameliorate no longer exists, which is so hilarious to me. Because also, Thomas is the one who has a chip on his shoulder about people not respecting his accomplishments because he thinks he thinks that they think that they think his accomplishments are due to his race. So it's like the, your main hangup is about racial discrimination in this country. So how, so here you are making the claim that blatant discrimination doesn't exist anymore. And he argued that people, have, so hit the statistics that he pointed out, which is one that Roberts pointed out too, is that people of color hold office at quote unquote unprecedented levels now. And I think I just wanted to quickly note that I think this is, a disadvantage of identity politics in the way that Obama has utilized them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Obama figureheads that make us think that... Because after Obama was elected in 2008, I recall many people claiming that race racism didn't exist anymore and that we had crossed into a new world of post-racial politics. <laughs> and I think that... And, right, which is hilarious. I mean, it's like hilarious in a sad way. But, you know, and then... I just think it's important to to note that just because there's people of color in office, that doesn't even mean that they're fighting for racial equity in voting or in other things, as Obama showed us with his immigration policy, among other things. So I just wanted to quickly point that out because the progress that he's pointing to is false progress. Yeah. Do you want to go over uh, Ginsburg's dissent real quick, just because we're <laughs> gone really long? <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> um so sure so um i liked her dissent it was a total reframe of the majority in thomas's argument which i i mentioned a few times because i just think the analysis is really smart she argues that the success of section four is really ironically propelling the majority's argument that it's no longer needed and um she i think also i've mentioned this already but she makes an important argument about who should be deciding whether or not Section 4 is still relevant, the court or the Congress that the 14th and 15th Amendments have explicitly given authority to decide, right? Like it says, she said, quote, a Congress charged with the obligation to enforce post-Civil War amendments by appropriate legislation. Like, this is literally in written in the 14th and 15th Amendments that Congress are the ones who are charged with fulfilling the promise of these two amendments. And um, she... So she just agreed with a congressional analysis that was made that the act should be renewed because continuing to renew it would mean that it would facilitate the completion of, yes, the impressive gains that have been made so far, but the also the progress that still needs to be made. And then she also said that, you know, continuing the act would guard against regressive backsliding, um, 
Do you want to go into why she thinks the majority misapplies the test? Well, just quickly, I'll just say that she just says it's, like, basically the wrong test. So there's this quote from this old, old justice from a long-ass time ago where it's, let the end be legitimate, let it be within the scope of the Constitution, and all means which are appropriate, which are plainly adapted to that end, which are not prohibited, but consists with the letter yeah, of the, and spirit of the Constitution are constitutional. And that's actually generally the test I learned about in my con law class, which isn't saying much because that, that class was trash, but... So it's just, like, what's this, like, test that the court is applying? Like, sure, like, I get it. Like, it does, like, the needs meet the burden or whatever. But it's, like, actually, as long as, like, it's within the scope and they're legitimate, like, that's that's up to Congress. So I recommend folks read the opinion because literally Ginsburg writes, like, a full-out opinion. Like, it's basically as long as the majority. So it's, like, worth it. And then just to, like, give the full line that Yvette referenced earlier. So she has this line, which folks, like, have really, really enjoy. So it's just, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. So I just think that's an accurate assessment of, like, how racism operates in our society. Okay, getting to, like, a quick discussion of voting rights. I'm going to skip a lot of the things that we had planned just for the sake of time. But, Yvette, do you want to talk a little bit about, like, why voter ID laws are a problem? Because I don't think that's clear to everyone. Yeah, they disproportionately impact people of color in low-income communities just because of the cost that it – so if you're a middle-class person, this will be a shock to you, but – uh, if you are poor, then you it's like very likely that you won't have an ID because you just like don't have the disposable income to get an ID and it's not a necessary thing to live your daily life. And so as a result, the people who are least likely to have identification are people of color in low-income communities. Yeah, and then you add in the fact that like a ton of states <laughs> will close DMV offices that are like the closest or in like neighborhoods with people of color. Um, so it just kind of adds to the obstacles of voting. And honestly, there's just like no voter fraud that happens. So it's just like we're worried about something that's not a problem. Okay. And then I want to get into all the ways that states are trying to limit voting because I just think it's important for folks to be very well informed about this, especially right now when there's like an important election coming up and like people are talking about elections so much. So just here are ways in which states are trying to reduce your ability to vote if you're a person of color or low income. So they reduce the hours at polling places. So basically that only people in white collar jobs or with higher incomes are able to like adjust and take time off from work to go vote. Right. So instead of like a voting place being open from like 7 to 8 p.m., the voting place will be open from like 9 to 5 p.m. kind of thing. And they'll also reduce the number of days to vote early. So, you know, you think you should be able to mail in your ballot maybe like a month before the actual election. So you have like 30 days to do it. Well, they'll reduce it so that you only have like five or three days to do it. So just, again, reducing your opportunity. Uh, A lot of states no longer allow same-day registration, which is just kind of weird. It's like if you allowed me to register and vote on the same day before, like why can't I now when, I mean, basically you have better technology, so this should be less of an issue. They'll also shut down polling places. So they'll like, this is something that would have before needed pre-clearance. So if you are trying to, uh, no longer staff the polling place the only polling place in this like black neighborhood well that would have been a problem but now they can just do that and I mean to be clear states that didn't need to do pre-clearance which were a majority of the states could just do this anytime without any approval and then right. 
some states will also throw away your ballot if you go to the wrong polling place, which when you consider that they're shutting down places or opening up new locations that are further from people of color, you might show up to the wrong one. And if you do and you vote there, your ballot's going to get thrown away. States, uh, most recently and most notably Ohio, because they had a case on this, will also purge voter registration lists. Which means, like, in Ohio, how they did it is if, if you didn't vote in two consecutive elections, which included a midterm, then Ohio would mail you a postcard asking if you, like, still live there and whatnot. And if you didn't mail that back, you were kicked off the list of registered voters. So if you showed up to vote on a, at a polling place, you would not be allowed to vote because you would not be registered. And so it's kind of like this a use it or lose it mentality. And the plaintiff in that case, which was a Navy veteran, uh, because, of course, they always try to get, like, the most sympathetic. Very sympathetic plaintiff. Yeah, most sympathetic plaintiffs. So his quote was, whether I use the right to vote or not is up to my personal discretion. They don't take away my right to buy a gun if I don't buy a gun. And so I like that example. because Amen, it's just like, Navy veteran. True. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I just like, thought this, like, the whole plaintiff thing and everything was just very amusing. Um, like, also, the amount of times I throw away postcards from the government without even reading them, I'm just like, of course, like, this makes sense why people don't return these postcards. And so this, just to be clear, this can be used even more aggressively. Like, there's, like, some law in it that, like, has limits, but, like, it's not working. And so, like, if you think about if you miss a local election or, you know, like, using that, considering how frequently they happen, um, that can be a little scary. And then states will yeah. also redistrict uh, a place. And by redistricting, it just means like, so it, for like your Congress, who represents you in Congress, they draw that, right? Like who is included in this congressional district? And so when they draw a new map of that, that's called redistricting. And they do this all the time. And if you've seen pictures of redistricting, it looks so funny and makes no, no sense how people are like lumped together. But it does make sense if you're thinking about how do I draw a map so that people of color are given less representation? There was recently a case on this because people are using whether you vote Democrat as a way to like redistrict for race. And I guess the Democrats are also doing it for Republicans. And so this is a problem. Another way people will, will lose their right to vote is if they are convicted a felon, right? And then states will make more crimes a felony so that you have more ways to be convicted a felon and lose your right to vote. Yes. Um, and so Cynthia mentioned this earlier, but these are the types of things that the preclearance requirement would have shut down before they're being implemented. Uh so the Ginsburg's dissent gave a bunch of examples of these types of laws that would have otherwise been shut down. Um, so oh, that were shut down by the VRA that now are things that can be enacted freely without any kind of preclearance requirement. So in 1995, Mississippi sought to enact a dual voter registration system, which was initially enacted in 1892 to disenfranchise black voters. And for that reason, it was struck down. In 2001, the mayor and all-white five-member board of the Board of Aldermen in Kilmichael, Mississippi, abruptly canceled the town's election after an unprecedented number of African-American candidates announced they were running for office. The DOJ required, stepped in, required an election, and the town elected its first black mayor and three black aldermen that year. In 2004, in Waller County, Count, Waller County Texas, uh, the county threatened to prosecute two black students after they announced their intention to run for office. The county then attempted to reduce the availability of early voting in the election at polling places near a historically black university. 
And so these are the things that the VRA stopped from happening and that now counties and local entities are free to enact laws such as this without needing to go through the DOJ or any kind of other clearance requirement. Yeah, and they are happening. There's a ton of different things that are happening. There's a lot of litigation that's too much to keep track of. But, like, let's be clear. These states are taking advantage of the uh, ability to just do things without getting checked. And the litigation on the back end is just taking a lot of time. Okay, so just quickly, we've talked about this before, but does voting even matter? And (laughs) I mean, like, sometimes, like, honestly, it depends on the day how I feel about this. But the fact that they try so hard to take it away, like, is meaningful to me. And, like, I posted the other day, like, a map of how the country would look if, like, only certain people voted. And that was so terrifying. Like, black women and, like, women of color, like, but specifically black women literally are keeping this country, like, from the brink of, like, some even worse shit. And, yeah, so I just... So, I don't know. I keep this in mind when I think about, like, whether it's important to vote or not. And... I don't know, but the but then I think like with more and more restrictions, like and the as more and more people lose their ability to vote, like I feel like voting is gonna become less like less important because it'll just be clear how the democracy, like quote unquote democracy is an illusion. Which makes me think like what the fuck are these people thinking? It's like they want us to have a revolution. Like what do you think people are gonna do when like so many have lost the ability to vote, which like is seen as the one way you can impact what's happening? And I just want to also note that uh, folks have talked about, like, you know, getting rid of the Electoral College, because if you do, then states will actually have an incentive to like make voting easier because it'll be by population, not like popu- by percentage of population that actually votes, not just like based on your population as collected by the census. So, yeah. And let's just end there. Anything else you want to add, Yvette? No, let's talk about Kavanaugh. Okay, so going on to Kavanaugh's confirmation. Um, I'll go. Do you want first. to share why you wanted to talk about this since it was your idea? Yeah, yeah. I'll go first, and then we'll get into yours because I think we'll talk about my my thoughts later. But so, I think the conversations around sexual assault that are happening are really important. Um, and it's like kind of silly, but honestly, like it's been important to me to see how many men have just been like, Jesus, fuck, like you too. And you like, goddamn, like I was listening to Slate Little Gaff Fest out of habit and, um, David Plotz, like he had a realization that, you know, like he was, they were doing a live audience and he's just like, if this many women have been sexually assaulted, like, he's just like, there's maybe a hundred people in the audience. He's like, at least maybe like. 30 men in this audience have assaulted. I think it was like different numbers, right? But like yep. to give an example. It's important to frame it that way. Yeah. And it's like, I've just been waiting for people to realize this. Um, because like, I've literally had conversations with like the men in my life. And I've mentioned this before where I tell them like, hey, you know, someone who's assaulted, you might have done it. Like you might have, you've probably definitely have harassed like you know, like, it's people you You're know. You're friends it's with not... someone who's raped another. Yes. It's, like, it's people you know who you don't hold accountable. It's not, like, this mythical, like, one person out there going around and doing this to all, like, all these women. So that's important. And I want to say that because I I think it's important and I'm fully behind that. But, like, you know, I want to be a public defender because of certain values and, and like, 
just beliefs, like deep beliefs that I have, like prison abolition and police abolition. And so I want to talk about the nuances of like being true to those values while also like finding important everything I just talked about. So, but so Yvette, let's, I also agree with everything you're about to say. So do you get into why you wanted to talk about this? I think it's important because Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation is something that's going to affect us for decades. It's going to be much more long-lasting than the Trump presidency. Brett Kavanaugh is 53. This is a lifetime court appointment. Most justices are currently in their 70s and 80s. And I think so just the effect that that's going to have on Supreme Court decisions is important to, to think about. And also it's disgusting to me that we still don't believe survivors and it's important to call out the entitlement of these Ivy League educated white dudes who mm-hmm. I went to school with and know very well. And for me also, this is a crisis of democracy. Um, most polled Americans, USA Today, uh, covered this poll that was done of like, a random sample of 1,400 adults and 51% of those polled do not approve of Kavanaugh's nomination. Also, most people believe that the Senate Judiciary, most people polled in this thing didn't believe that the Senate Judiciary Committee did enough to investigate the sexual assault allegations. And so I think this is important because I think the Supreme Court is already the least democratically accountable branch and for that reason should be the least legitimate and the branch and the one that we're most suspicious of. And so I think the fact that his nomination occurred in such a sketchy, undemocratic way is something that we should all be very, very concerned about if we do care about a functioning democracy. And then also, hopefully, I I really hope this, I'm a little jaded at this point, but I want people to stop believing in the Supreme Court as our savior. You know, I think that Sotomayor and Ginsburg are cute in their own way, but we can't rely on these, on this group this bench of nine people that ultimately are wealthy and elitist elite and to liberate us and and to Mm -hmm. protect our rights and create more rights for us and so I hope that it makes people organize and take to the streets and think about more creative ways that we can get ourselves free apart from these long-established institutions that have been failing us yeah I agree um oh yeah I also just kind of want I know this isn't the main like point of this segment but i kavanaugh's a sketchy dude with sketchy politics and i think that's another reason why we should talk about this yeah yeah Um, i really wanted you to get into this because when i was at the protest in dc i saw so many people who were there because of like his the the sexual assault allegations and and everything like that and i was just like my my friend that i went with she made a point of taking a like a sign with like a like being like um, civil liberties over national security because his like jurisprudence and his viewpoints are really terrible and even if these allegations should have never had come out or like had never happened or whatever right um, he still he, shouldn't be confirmed yeah exactly so please get into all of his sketchy politics so he dissented on the dc circuit last year this is a actually i think this is a case that we covered um they when they ruled it was constitutionally permissible for a 17 year old to have an abortion while detained in immigration custody. He dissented and said that the government has permissible interests in favoring fetal life, protecting the best interests of a minor, as in the court should decide what the the court and like DHS, Department of Homeland Security, are the ones who are in charge of protecting the best interests of the minor. 
in refraining from facilitating abortion. And he held that the government may further those interests so long as it does not impose an undue burden on a woman seeking an abortion. Undue burden, that's language from Roe. So essentially he's saying that under his own analysis of Roe, the government stopping a 17-year-old from having an abortion that she desires while she's detained in immigration custody is a permissible burden, which is insane to me. Like, how is yeah. not a- allowing her to have an abortion not an undue burden? You're literally prohibiting her from having an abortion she desires. Yeah. I don't know what kind of, what, what bigger burden would there be? Like, holding a gun to her head so that she doesn't do it? Like, what would the undue burden be? Um, and so he, so that's him on abortion. Him on the First Amendment. He, so he said that religious speakers and religious people have, quote unquote, a right to their place in the public square. And the way that this has played out is that he represented then Florida Governor Jeb Bush in his push for a school voucher program that attempted to get public money to private religious schools. That which, uh, so the voucher programs I've always found sketchy for that reason. We, If we are at all going to try and keep church and state separate, I don't think that public money should be going to people to so that they can enroll their children in private religious institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the... So this is something the Supreme Court eventually ruled was unconstitutional while Kavanaugh was on George W. Bush's staff. Um, and so his thoughts on the Second Amendment. Uh, so he claims that it follows from Heller, that's a Supreme Court decision, from Heller's protection of semi-automatic handguns that also semi-automatic rifles are also constitutionally protected and that Washington, D.C.'s ban on them is unconstitutional. He dissented from the majority decision that found that semi-automatic rifles are not constitutionally protected and therefore that D.C.'s ban was fine. <laughs> that is so he terrifying. The, Jesus Christ. I know, right? Like, we, like a layperson or the police, obviously, nobody needs a semi-automatic rifle. Like, whatever situation you're trying to contain, you do not need a semi-automatic rifle to do so. Uh, he thinks that the government's metadata collection program is consistent with the Fourth Amendment. That's insane. Uh, I'm not going to get into that, but, like, the fact that he thinks it's fine for the government to be collecting all this data on our our like behavior on the internet and like conversations via the phone all of our cell phone data the fact that he thinks it's fine for the government to collect that for with no warrant is consistent with the fourth amendment is very scary and uh he also helped bush's team in the high stakes supreme court decision to block the recount of votes in 2000 presidential election between bush and al gore which yes led to bush's eventual election to president Uh, and then finally his his thoughts on executive power are a bit scary in this context in which there's the investigation going on against Trump because he's made claims that allude to his belief that a president can't be investigated or prosecuted while serving as president, which is, you know, perhaps why Trump found him to be such an appealing pick for the Supreme Court. I wanted to ask if the Supreme Court is even a legitimate entity in the first place. I don't know. I think like I thought this might be a good time to bring up this conversation when we see this totally illegitimate confirmation occurring, particularly post Merrick Garland being blocked. Um, It's always been the least democratic branch. And, you know, uh, to get a little bit into more of the details of um, his confirmation process, uh, days before his confirmation hearing, Democrats spoke out against a White House decision to withhold 2,700 documents 27,000 <laughs> documents, many from Kavanaugh's time in the Bush administration, citing quote-unquote constitutional privilege. Schumer called it a Friday night document massacre that has all the makings of a cover-up. The White House had released more than four, 
115,000 pages on Kavanaugh's background, it withheld over 100,000. And apart from the very vague citing of constitutional privilege, there's been no explanation as to why the White House hasn't released those documents. That is wild and completely goes to your point, you know, like how the Supreme Court isn't the branch we should be relying on, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's super sketchy. Okay, so let's back up a little bit and talk more about the confirmation itself and the arguments people were making about why he should or shouldn't be confirmed. Like, during all this, like, conversation that was happening, like, what were you thinking about? So, I guess some people point to the fact that the FBI background check was not conclusive, but the... My understanding of the FBI background check was that it was super shitty. Like, they um, they didn't follow up with many of the corroborating witnesses that Ford and other accusers had brought forward. It was done in a week. What, you know, what thorough investigation can be done in a week? And so, for me, the fact that it was inconclusive means nothing because it was kind of a, for me, it was a performative investigation. It wasn't actually a thorough one. And then I was thinking about how people said that Ford hadn't come forward earlier and that it was really sketchy that all of a sudden while he was being confirmed, she came forward. I just think that shows a mis- that's a misunderstanding of our flawed legal system. People don't report for so many reasons because reporting to the police is an often re-traumatic experience where the police officers don't believe you, they question you. The court process itself is an adversarial one where there's going to be a, a defense lawyer pushing you, like reframing your whole story you know poking holes in your credibility and oftentimes they bring up you know things that are inappropriate that you don't that a survivor doesn't want to hear like it's it's a really it's like it's re-traumatic to go through the legal system as it currently exists as a survivor and so it's the fact that she didn't come forward doesn't say much to me about her credibility it just says something about our legal system and then it's also a misunderstanding of trauma, too, because I think people are arguing that since it happened so long ago, there couldn't be, it couldn't be possible they could accurately remember all these details, but that's not how traumatic events work. Um, when you experience trauma, the details of the, those events are seared into your memory. I mean, that's literally what PTSD is. And uh, I think so. I was reading an account of Ramirez, who was the Yale graduate who had accused him, and she was describing really vivid details like the drinking game that they were playing, the location on Yale's campus where they were, the other men who were there, Brett's action, etc. And that to me makes total sense why she would remember it because it's a traumatic event that was seared in her memory. And it, like, you know, it's like if you were to ask me to remember something from 15 years ago, it's like I probably wouldn't remember what I was wearing that day or like where I was or the specific events that occurred. But I can tell you about like specific I can tell you details about specific events that I found to be traumatic because again that's how memory works. And so I found all that bullshit and then also people were like pointing to the fact that there were like various friends of Debbie Ramirez, the Yale accuser who came out, who was like, Debbie never told me this while I was friends with her. And it's just like, you know what, maybe you weren't that that good of friends. Or, you know, like not everybody goes around telling everybody about their sexual assault. That's just, you know, you keep it private for because of the culture that we have of not believing survivors. And just as a side note, Kavanaugh was a member of Deke, which was a rapey ass frat, even in 2010, 2014, when I was there at Yale. So he's suspicious as fuck to me. So I, like, agree with some of what you said, not all of it, and I don't think it's, like, 
disagreeing because we have different principles or anything like that. But, like, I just, like, from the trainings I've been in terms of, like, how memory works, I – there's there's also a lot of literature on, like, misidentification and, like, the way, like, that happens because of how you remember – like, how you remember trauma or things that happened to you and, like, caused you trauma – so, because there's a lot of cases where someone who was raped will accuse someone and will, like, identify that person in a lineup, and, you know, like, years later, they'll do the DNA test that, like, they hadn't done, and they'll realize, like, it was a complete misidentification, and there's a lot of different factors at, at play. Usually, it's racial, so that things that wouldn't apply in this case, like, I I don't doubt, um, like, Dr. Ford's memory at all, and in this case, like, I'm not saying that's at play here, but I... Do the misidentifications happen in instances of sexual assault by a stranger? Yeah, no. So that's what I'm saying. But I'm so what I'm so what I'm saying is I'm not questioning it here. But what I am questioning is just like the authority of memory and like memory never being infallible. Because I do see Mm -hmm. a a lot of cases in which memory is infallible. Uh, I mean, is fallible, and um, folks think they remember something which like later because of like pictures that come out or, or different things that come out. Um, like the color of the car will actually have been different. So I don't think those things are at play here and that's not what I'm saying, but I am, I just wanted to push back a little bit on your statements of memory because I, I just, that's not what I see all the time. I think it's important to emphasize that the misidentifications happen in instances where the sexual assault was by a stranger. Whereas like here, like with the, with the Debbie Ramirez person I was talking about in particular, the Yale graduate, like she was, I think she was best friends with his roommate and they, that circle of friends was frequently hanging out. And so that made her much more credible to me because like you, it makes sense to me that you'd remember some of like someone in your extended social circle doing that to you and that you would remember it because you knew them very well yeah no I hear you like I'm not challenging whether like Ramirez or Ford remember accurately like not challenging that at all like just pushing back on memory like as a blanket statement being something you can rely on when like yeah in in these sort of in identifying or just like remembering what like happened like just I I disagree and that memory is always so reliable like when you've experienced trauma not disagreeing that in these two cases I find them completely reliable incredible yeah and I think it's important to recognize in it like because in the criminal justice system like if a misidentification can mean life or death for people so that is important to recognize yeah and okay so kind of going more into this vein So what I was thinking a lot about when this was happening, and I stayed a lot of quiet because I knew I, people would find what I was saying maybe hard (laughs) to listen to or want to listen to it. So when people were arguing like, oh, it was more than 30 years ago, you know, and like using that kind of refrain, and I saw like the pushback against that. So like what I was feeling during that argument, and that's something that just like really stayed with me was, like, first off, I just, like, find it so fucking disgusting and insulting, like, like to the level of, like, maybe, like, insidious and pernicious that the same people who were saying, like, oh, we shouldn't be bringing this up because it happened to Kavanaugh, like, it ha- like more than 30 years ago. Like, those same people are the people that support, like, longer sentences for people with, who, like, have committed crimes in the past and been convicted of those crimes 
And like those are the same people who are choosing to fund prisons instead of like funding diversion programs. And so like I like I want to just say that out loud, like clear off the bat, like the people who were saying that I find disgusting, like and the reasons why they were saying that I find disgusting. But like as someone who wants to be a public defender, as someone who's a prison abolitionist and someone who believes in like addressing harm in ways that actually reduce harm and not like cause more harm. I 100% believe that no one is the worst thing they've ever done and that when someone commits harm, like, they should be held accountable. Like, they should, definitely, but in a way that reduces harm for all, including the perpetrator. So, like, you know, if you asked me, like, no, I don't think Kavanaugh should, like, go to prison for this. And, like, no, I don't think that someone who, like, something you did 30 years ago should prevent you from, like, finding employment. But I also think, like, neither of those apply here. So while it was something that I... I hate that people brought that up. It's such a red herring. Yeah, no, and I, like, I hear that. But, like, the reaction against that, like, that idea that, like, something that you did 30 years ago, like should follow you like just the re like it was like the reaction to the statement right like I hate that people brought it up because of who the people were that were bringing it up and who they were bringing it up for right like Kavanaugh has never like been held accountable like he's enjoyed a lot of privilege and like been in very prestigious jobs and is like going to do like something that's a lifetime appointment where he's gonna have a lot of power like all of these things are very very different in kind to me and like not a matter of degree but and like and there's so many other things that disqualify him but I just like if Kavanaugh had been like held accountable for this right if he had been convicted right he would have probably like ended up like on a sex offender list and I want to talk more about that um in a minute like but so it's just I do want to talk about this because yeah no I don't think something that you did 30 years ago should be able to like prevent you from finding employment which again I think is different in Kavanaugh's situation but yeah so that's why I wanted to talk about it yeah just building off of that point I think I agree with you to the extent that uh he's not applying for a regular job he's applying to be a Supreme Court justice which is the furthest thing from something that somebody is entitled to or something that somebody deserves and I don't think that's why I don't because of this particular context that we're talking about, I don't think it's wrong to have behavior, especially as severe as this. You know, the account of Ford is ter- he was trying to rape her. And like the the way that he the stories that I've heard of him behaving, like showing his dick to people at Yale without consent, it's all really gross. I don't think that. That should be, I think that it's fine if that's enough to block his seat on the bench, you know, especially because it's like, well, so it happened, like, okay, we shouldn't pay attention to it because it happened 30 years ago. Well, so what's the metric? Is it okay if he did it five years ago or two? And and why? And why does it matter that it happened so long ago? Because he's changed since then? What proof of there is that? And what has changed exactly? Is it his internal attitudes towards women that have changed? Or is it the fact that he no longer openly assaults people that's changed? You know, because for me, it's like the what would need to change is more than just the fact that he no longer assaults people. I would want to know that his that his internal attitudes towards women have changed, that he recognized that he was treating women as property and he, he was treating women as property that he was entitled to. And I'd want him to openly say that he knows that that's wrong and that he's changed since then. And I think ultimately this is like kind of a moot point because there's all the other things that I listed earlier that I think should disqualify him. But I'm just not enough of a procedural purist to care which 
of it it is you know like i heard like one of my coworkers was like oh i don't think this should be the thing that disqualifies him because actually she it's kind of funny she she's a removal defense attorney but she says she's like a pub she has a public defender heart and she says that she she brought up the memory thing about how fallible it is and i was like honestly i don't really care what keeps him off the bench i just think he should be kept off the bench i'm i'm someone who cares about outcomes and like if this were to stop him from like rolling back abortion rights if it was to stop him from rolling back like the separation of church and state i'm fine with that you know i think like if this was a conversation about like where he said i did this i regret it i admit to it but i have changed i think this would be a whole different conversation for me because i i do think that it's wrong that our society persecutes people for things they've done in the past with the assumption that they can't change Cause like I think it'd be really dope to see a a story where, like we openly talk about someone's past mistakes and that where they openly reckon with that and where they say I'm sorry that I did this I've changed and this is how I can demonstrate to you that I've changed. That's cool to me, but that's not what's occurring here, you know. And that's why I think he deserves to go down for it because I don't think that ultimately punitive punishment is healing or effective in stopping future harm. But I'm just not going to expend energy to ensure that Brett Kavanaugh isn't the victim of that. And I agree with you in that, in the sense that, like, I was out seeing Brett Kavanaugh's, like, confirmation. Like, I, like, I agree. I'm not, haven't defended him at all. But because this conversation is happening on such a national level, and so, like, just, like, everyone's talking about this. Everyone's talking about sexual assault. And, like, that's kind of, like, the moment that we're in. Just seeing folks' reaction, I do think it's important because, like, the things that you're saying, like, oh, what, like, what should the metric be, like, five years, two years, and why, like, I want to know that he's changed, like, I want to know these things, like, I agree in the, this circumstance, that's completely appropriate to ask, but I see how, like, that's just n- generally the national sentiment towards everybody, and so, like, it, because of the system that we have, like, I feel like I need to challenge it, because, like, it plays out in day-to-day of not people like Brett Kavanaugh, but, like, the people who we don't have any sympathy for, for the people who nobody gets up and defends, you know? And so, because, like, this is national sentiment, it means that, you know, poor people, people of color who are accused of crimes, like, there's a white judge usually sitting there being like, do you regret it? Have you changed? Like, are you not going to talk to this person anymore? Like, oh, um, like, what are you think about this? I'm going to need you to check in on here. I'm going to need you to do this because we feel like there's like this right to just police these people further. And so like just seeing that play out day to day, day in, day out in the criminal justice system and then hearing this national conversation, like they're not so removed from each other to me, right? Because of what my work is. And it's just like, I don't think we have a system like where, like we are like fit to address sexual assault and like you know so it's just like it's hard because it's like the only way we address it is like by putting people on like sex offender registries when there is a conviction right and like the the questions that you're asking like that you mentioned that like defense attorneys will ask like someone like a survivor right if they go through a trial about like the relationship like I agree in the sense that they're very invasive and you know, they're very, like, personal and insulting a lot of times, but, like, human, like, relationships are complicated, and I, and I know that sounds bad, and, like, I, I can hear it, 
But like just seeing the kinds of cases that go into the criminal justice system, like it's so many, it's just, there's so many times where I just feel like these things shouldn't be in the criminal justice system. And if someone's at risk of getting put on the sex offender registry, at risk of being put in prison, in a situation that's very, very complicated, that the criminal justice system and our laws is reducing to just a conviction, like, I am going to ask those questions because I need to get the nuances out. And I know how that sounds. But again, like, I think it's just, it's, it's hard to see how police and the criminal justice system is used in such harmful ways. And so I want to talk a little bit, give a little bit background on, you know, why I'm like reacting this way. And like, what I think, of like how we treat sex offenses, sex offenders in this country, right? And like, what are the consequences of being convicted of a sex offense, like rape or sexual assault? And so, like, just and wait to be to be clear, like me, me th- like saying that there that I think it's fine for there to be consequences for something you did a long time ago. It doesn't mean that I meant in the context of the criminal justice system. Like, I fully support all that you do on this in the trial courtroom to try and get your clients to not be incarcerated because I just don't think that the criminal justice system is a place where accountability where true and effective accountability will be created but that doesn't mean that I don't think people should be held accountable that that people should not ever be held accountable do you know what I mean like I think that there should be consequences and I think that like I don't know I think that requires a much more complicated conversation about what co- what consequences look like because right now our punitive mentality makes it so that consequences like fuck people's lives up in ways that just do more harm. But like, yes. I think that we do need to have those conversations because I think that they're like men need to face consequences, like you know, because they're not they don't change their behavior otherwise. And I think like I'm not saying that the consequences should be that you end up on a sex offender registry, but I think, like, the fact that I want there to be consequences is what, in this very limited context, makes me feel comfortable with him not getting nominated because he, like, sexually assaulted somebody such a long time ago, and, like, ultimately he didn't have any consequences, and that that is what I think is the issue in our society, is that, like, people like him with privilege and power don't ever face consequences. But I just wanted to, like, make that clear in case anybody thought that I was, like, doubling back on my prison abolition stance or something. No, and, and I and I hear you and I agree with everything that you're saying, and but that's the thing, like I don't think most people are where you're at. And I think that because the criminal justice system is our only way of holding people accountable, like the only system that we use right. and that in people's head exists to hold like as a way to have consequences for someone, that's why I think it's important to be like, wait, hold on, dial down. Like I agree with you, but because the way you're thinking about accountability is just like incarceration and like sex offender registries. Yep. Like, I can't, like, go all the way with you. Like, I, like, I, I have, like, unless you're also imagining a different world, a different way of holding people accountable for things like this and in a better way that actually changes behavior, you know, like, I'm with it there, but I don't think most people are. So I do want to go a bit through, like, what, like, again, like, the sex offender registry, because I think it, that has been just for many, many years and decades, like, the response of our society when, like, grave sexual offenses are committed, and I'm not, like, undermining how grave they are, but I just, like, the way we have set up to deal with them is just, in my opinion, just so, so bad, 
Okay, so first off, like, I just want to be clear that there's a lot of children on the sex offender registry, and it's a very real problem with lots of consequences, and we should discuss it in depth, like, at another time. Like, I definitely want to have that, and there's, like, a, a guest that I would love to have on for that conversation, and I recommend folks look into it. Like, I'll post a link to the Human Rights Watch um, report that's titled Raced on the Registry, the Irreparable Harm of Placing Children on Sex Offender Registries in the United States. So there's, like, one, like, for those folks who don't know, there are children on sex offender registries. It's, a, again, very complicated. We'll put a pin on that for another day. Okay, and second, there's so many accounts, like so, so many accounts of how people commit suicide who are on the registry and people even just threatened with being on the registry who know that like they're about to be like registered. And like to me, that's just so inhumane that we see this and we know this, that like we know that we're making life unbearable for a population, aka those convicted of sex offenses. And we've done nothing to change the conditions we've set up, you know, like no matter what you like you think of the crime like if we're creating conditions where people are killing themselves like that to me is just insane and we need to do something very yeah. very different um yeah like people aren't disposable like that i mean like like you said like we're not the we aren't the worst thing we've ever done yeah and if you believe that about yourself you need to believe that about another person too yeah Okay, and so, like, here are some of the requirements, like, that peop- someone who ha- is convicted of a sex offense, like, has to do. And I'm going to list them, and they're going to sound like a lot, but I want them, I want folks to be aware of it. Um, because it, it's just, okay, I'm just going to go into it. So, like, you have to register on the sex offender registry, first off. And so, like, if you fail to register or, like, fail to up- update your address within, like, 24 hours or, like, a certain time limit when you move, that can actually result in a new felony conviction, Right. So there's like that just right off the bat, like the first thing, just being on the list itself, like get having to register is an issue. OK, so the list, as we all know, is public and it includes where you live. It includes your mugshot. It includes your name. Right. And so like you were talking earlier about how like people are doxing, you know, and using that as a strategy. Well, that's been going on forever, like with people who have who are on the sex offender registries. Like there's so many narratives of how people will like have their like will just face so much harassment day in and day out because this information about them is public. Okay. So you're not allowed to live in a house where children live, you know, which is impossible if you have kids yourself. Like the registry doesn't take that into account. And it's impossible if you're, like, low income and usually if you're on the sex offender registry, like, you don't have access to public housing. You're not allowed to live there. You don't get, like, kind of, like, housing assistance in the way that other folks who are low income do. And so if you don't have a ton of income, you know, sometimes living with a family member would be, like, the only other option. But if that family member has kids, like, you're shit out of luck. You can't live there either, right? You can't live near school. And I think this is, like, an example of, like, so... I guess like I don't know. I'm still working on imagining alternative forms of accountability, but this is an ex- this is like these are things that I want to point to that I think are not effective because to me like holding someone accountable is about repairing harm. It's not about making their lives unlivable. Yeah, and, and that's what this list is like because you can't live near schools or childcare facilities or other places like that, which means in places like Los Angeles or like New York, you actually have to live really far out of a city, out of the suburbs which has repercussions for like job opportunities, you know, and like, so you have to live in very rural areas. Like when I was in Louisiana, we all knew that like the only place like, like if you were on the sex offender list where you could live was like out in the rural, like on this farm that someone had set up for sex offend people who were convicted sex offenders who had nowhere to live. Like that's wild. 
that's yeah, wild. and that's very rare. Um, okay, and so you can be also prohibited from having any contact with minors, which means you can't go to a family funeral. You can only do your grocery shopping like at very limited hours, like things like that. In some states, you have to have like a special ID card or a driver's license that identifies you as a sexual offender. So just think of all the times you are required to show your ID and like all the people who you show your ID, like they would just have that information about you. You have to like constantly check in with law enforcement. And like in Kansas, for example, if you're homeless, you have to report to local law enforcement every three days, like every three days. And like new requirements, like say you're you're convicted a sex offender, you register for the list, and at the time you register, you have like ten things you're supposed to do. If later on they add like another five things, um, that'll be retroactive and apply to you too, even though it was in the law when you were like registered, which is like generally a huge no no in like across like our legal system. Like things are not allowed to be retroactive. For good reason. You know, you should be serve your time, serve your be held accountable and then move on with your life. Yeah, exactly. So like those those are just some of the things like the most popular things that are like used across the states because every single state has a registry. Um, And so I just wanted to mention that because we have to keep that in mind when when we're talking about sexual assault. Like, yes, I agree. Like there needs to be accountability and there need to be consequences and behaviors need to be changed but we have to imagine that outside of our criminal justice system yeah and so like I appreciated you laying out how much poor black and brown folks that are criminalized have to deal with when they are put on the sex offender registry because I see in the immigration context every day how punitive actions don't work to repair harm, create accountability, or prevent future harm. And I think that Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation is ultimately the biggest example of this. Like, he is a person who has committed crimes that in this current instance we say, or in this current moment we say should land you on the sex offender registry, but he's not, and he never will be. And his Georgetown prep classmates that did the same will never either, despite a pattern and practice of abusing women, and these things aren't a coincidence. You know, our policing system is a racialized and a classed one where consequences exist only for poor black and brown folks. And I think that that's important to point out because... I think, like, people kind of imagine, like, well, what will happen without a sex offender registry? Are we just going to let all these sex offenders run amok? And it's like, they already do that. Like, if you're white, wealthy, and privileged, you can, you know, you can do, do things, you can commit sexual assault, harass people, and ultimately not ever be held accountable for it. And you can still r- run around the world free to do it again if you want to. You know, it's like, these these policing mechanisms aren't effective they don't prevent harm they just create harm for poor black and brown folks and i think it's important to point out that this was part of the logic behind kavanaugh claiming that a georgetown prep neil educated person could never sexually assault another human being and that's based on this that's the logic of the prison system right now right that's how society accepts the fact that it's only black and brown people that are incarcerated it's this idea that they're the only people who are quote-unquote criminals and so it's it's really important that you're pointing out all of the flaws of the sex offender registry and how much havoc it wreaks on people's lives. Yeah, no, I yeah, and I agree with your with what you're saying and it's just like I just I the Me Too movement has been so powerful and so important and I like agree with it, but I've just been so worried of the Me Too movement leading to like 
like making it easier to prosecute sex crimes, you know, or like getting tougher with people who are found guilty of sex crimes like rape. Like I just would be so heartbroken if that's what the Me Too movement led to, you know? Yeah. And I think you did you want to talk about what you want the future of the movement to look like if and, you know, a future that doesn't include expanding the prison system? Yeah, so, like, this doesn't necessarily get at, like, accountability in all the ways that it should look like or whatnot, but I was talking on the phone with a friend the other day from law school, and her and I were just talking about this, and I just, like, shared with her, so I wanted to share it here in case other folks also feel this way. Like, I am so tired of women like having to do the emotional labor of discussing sexual assault, you know, like it's just hard to be constantly reading and like hearing about sexual assault and like have to re-engage with like my own experience, which like for me personally is something I've like consistently made the decision to bury. Like I don't, it's not something I want to process, you know, it's been 10 years, but it's not something I want to think about. It's not something I want to talk about. And, and so it's like, I'm tired of like women having the ones to to go through this to share and to process instead like I want to see men like like posting on Facebook you know how like they need to step up and like they need to fucking own all the many times they've been aggressive that they've assaulted that they've harassed like I want to see them on Facebook like the way that women have been like apologizing and owning the role they like have them specifically have played in upholding like rape culture and misogyny like they need to be ready and willing to be held accountable for it. Like, you know, they need to, if people stop being their friends, people stop talking to them. If whatever it is, like the consequences that happen for owning what you did, I think it's just like the burdens, they should also have a burden to now process what they did and have to go through that. Because like, I, I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but I just want to, I'm not going to get into details or specifics, but I very much think men need to step up and there's space for them to do something within the me too movement also yeah i don't know i just think like until yeah i I just think uh, cash reparations for femme identified people are needed right now and so you can venmo (laughs) at citabronas or donate to our patreon (laughs) that's it that's all i want to say about where the me too movement should go just pay me and cynthia and anyone else who's a femme in your life that does work for you for free. <laughs> this is such a side note, but people need to stop asking us to speak at stuff for free. Complete side note. But <laughs> sorry, I'm I'm mad. Anyway, should we move on to deep thoughts? Yes, deep thoughts. Um, so I feel like this is going to be a very quick recommendation because this is already like the longest episode we've ever done for good reason. Um, but sorry to bother you, Yvette, please, for those who have, don't know what that is. Yeah. So it's a movie that was written and directed by Boots Riley and he's the son of Walter Riley, who's a prominent civil rights attorney. I just wanted to give a little shout out to Walter because he gave the keynote address at the Progressive Law Day conference I helped plan two years ago. And he was a lawyer who helped defend... He's been in the game for a really long time, like been defending people in the civil rights movement and most recently was defending folks who were in Black Lives Matter actions in Oakland. So he's just really dope and obviously just a very dope family. Um, The film is genre bending. It's a mix of comedy, drama, and at the end there's a little horror that's 
mixed in. It follows the story of Cassius or Cash Green, who's a broke dude living in his uncle's garage. You know, he pays for gas 40 cents at a time. It's going what his budget is. And he works for a telesales company where he's not making much money, but eventually learns that the upper level salespeople at his company sell workers time, which essentially makes him like a modern day slave trader. And the film is cool because it's like it shows a dystopic world that's eerily similar to ours. It, the most popular show on TV in the movie is called I Got the Shit Kicked Out of Me, which f- features, yep, people getting the shit kicked out of them. And which I think, like, we we consume a lot of stuff that is about, that's like trauma porn or it's about people experiencing pain. And so I thought that was a really smart thing to include. And there's a company called Worry Free that advertises everywhere that offers a lifetime labor contract in exchange for room and board, which sounds a lot like slavery and the the salespeople at his company are the, are they're selling the workers the like worry-free workers time um so just like a really dark but also very accurate portrayal of late stage capitalism yeah i so when i saw this i just like i went with two friends in new orleans and when we walked out of this i was just like i don't know how to feel because it was it's just like it wasn't like it was funny there were things about the movie that were funny but i was just like this isn't funny this feels too real like this feels like it could happen tomorrow like just the way that everything was portrayed like what you're saying about it's very eerily similar like that's what i was like walked away from like this isn't funny this is too real oh yeah no of course yeah, and, like, I think, like, they portrayed it in a really dramatic way, but honestly, a lot of the things that they were featuring are happening now, like, yeah. with, like, with Worry Free, you know, okay, it's obviously very extreme that, like, you would live where you work, but with, especially with, like, the culture of tech, where they're trying to increase the meshing of work and personal life, it's kind of like we're on that trajectory. Obviously much less extreme, but like these things that these companies have where they include a gym in their facilities and they include a cafeteria of lunch and dinner and they include like places to nap. Like those are all created so that you don't ever have to leave the work office building. And it's like complicated to think about because those workers are very privileged and rich, and so we don't think of them as disadvantaged. But like, I just think that we should think about how scary it is that these companies are devising ways to keep their workers in the building for longer hours in the day. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Like, how do you feel? Like, so under the broad umbrella of like capitalism and this film's like commentary on capitalism, like I felt like the portrayal of workers was really interesting because like what you're saying, like in, in real life, what happened, you know, like the workers that are like spending the most hours a day, like, you know, on these different campuses, they called campuses, not workplaces, um, are very, very privileged. Right. And then like, so the portrayal of workers in the film, I thought was very interesting because it, I mean, there was like two type of workers, right. The workers who like were protesting and revolting and like demanding better conditions. And then there were like the workers like our main character who like wanted to get ahead you know and kind of like maybe weren't comfortable with the ways to get ahead but like the more privilege and more like comfort they personally experienced themselves like the more willing they were to like do it on the backs of other people um Mm -hmm. so at all the corporate law biddies oops yes i just like that i thought was interesting because it made i think 
me question myself and I hope made others question themselves too you know like the worker in this film wasn't romanticized I guess is what I'm trying to say yeah that's true I think it showed that it's it was more than a simplistic like worker versus big corporation it it showcased how workers that really the workers that try and end up at management level are complicit in the evils of the employer as well yes exactly and I agree with that especially like I don't know it's just something that I think we're not self-critiquing about enough even people with like radical politics right like I just I've seen, (laughs) that sounds fucked up, but I've seen people of color who, like, will get a higher income or will, like, step into leadership roles, and I'm just like, you might as well be white. (laughs) Unpopular opinion. Yeah, I think, like, I just appreciated that the portrayal of the employers was one where, like, there's just very clear, like, employers are evil. I think that's especially important um, for us to realize as, uh, like, people who do like quote-unquote social justice lawyering um that like where I think like because of that we think of work as something that's fulfilling and not evil but ultimately yeah like the fact that we have to sell our labor for wages is fucked up yeah wait let me go back and explain why I said (laughs) you might as well be white because I feel like I didn't explain that at all but I just mean that like there's so many people of color who are like think they're because they're a person of color, they're doing no harm. But I'm just like, you have a really high income and you are also in a leadership position, which is giving you all this like power trip and you like treat other people very poorly, even though you like claim to represent them. But you are actually now like endorsing and furthering like the abusive practices you once like would have protested. So that's what I meant by like, you might as well be white. So yeah, but going on to employers, which is what you were talking about. um, I agree. (laughs) Did you want to talk about unions and striking? Yeah, I thought, so my family got out of poverty because of a union job. So I've always been very pro-union. But like, I will talk to other people about unions and they'll like scoff at me because they'll be like, oh, there's so much like corruption in unions. And they'll remember like the, you know, like the, I don't even know what time period, but when like the Italian mafia was very connected to unions, you know, and all these things. And so I just appreciated that this film, I felt like, reminded our generation of how unions got started in the first place, you know, and like their role in terms of like, all the people who were protesting and, you know, and like coming together as a community and and, like standing together, like, that's basically a union, like that's, that's a union. Like, I know unions are huge now and have a lot of like political power in some states and not all states. But like, at its basis like unions are people coming together like standing in solidarity and demanding better conditions and demanding more from their employers who just practice abusive practices because if you don't come together if you don't form a union then like individually you can be really targeted and impacted in a way that when it's all of us like they can't target us as much um and I also yeah. felt like it was a reminder, like, like, striking can be important and can be powerful. Like, personally, like, protesting, I didn't go out to protest because I thought that, like, oh, if I go out to protest, for sure the the Senate won't confirm Kavanaugh. Like, I knew there was, like, that was, like, very, very unlikely. But there was so many other benefits. Like, like there were so many people who walked by who, like, ended up stopping and, like, trying to, like, listen on the speeches and stuff and, like, just so just being there and calling people's attention like that's a that's an important thing of striking right like 
informing more people just the creation of community itself like even if even if like there's no quote-unquote tangible outcome i think what i found what i always find most powerful about protests and actions is like feeling better about the fact that there are other people who agree with me that there are other people who think that that whatever we're protesting is fucked up because i think the most powerful tool that the opposition has is our likelihood to become jaded and to become apathetic because it feels hard. It feels like yeah. even even in the privileged position that I'm in, I feel powerless and without agency a lot. Yeah. And it I feel so empowered when I know like there's a crowd of people that think this is wrong and think it's so wrong that they're willing to take time out of their busy and hectic lives to say something about this. Yeah, and that's like... And I think that is a productive outcome in and of itself regardless of what happens after the protest. Yeah, but like... Like most likely, if you are in these events and you're forming community, you're forming networks too. You know, you're connecting. You're like seeing other people who think like you and who you can like build together with. You know, so there can also be very mm-hmm. like maybe the tangible outcome isn't that you got this one thing like to not go through, but maybe the next time because you're you know each other and you're part of a network, like maybe the next time you will, right? So I think that like forming the network yeah. and community is important. So, yeah, I just felt like I really appreciated that this film brought back, like, unions and striking back to its its basics. Because especially, like, for example, like, when we posted about, like, striking in and out, so many people were like, oh, this is so pointless. Like, they're not even going to notice. And so people were, like, the reactions to that post were just, like, so jaded <laughs> um, and cynical. And they were like, th- it was an interesting post and, like, the comments were interesting. But I just appreciate that this, like, reminds us or showed shows us a way in which unions and striking is useful i agree do you want to talk about code switching and then we can go into recommendations yes so let's end on code switching so this film obviously does code switching to an extreme uh but i thought in a very very realistic way so just like I don't like so he it's extreme because his voice literally changes to sound like a white person. It's like a black actor and they like dub over his voice so he sounds like really high pitched and white like this. <laughs> yeah. And so but I like pointing out how it's not like dramatic like Yvette, how often like when you code switch, not saying that, like how often do you do it? I think I code switch all the time as a lawyer. Um, I think that I'm blessed in my office because I have really rad legal latinx legal assistance and uh, my supervisor is a latina woman so when i feel more empowered around them to speak however i want to speak but i mean when i'm in the courtroom it's it's performance all day yeah what about you like i i code switch all the time and i found that funny that it's like i literally code switch as often as like the main character like when i'm in law school classrooms i often code switch like that's a behavior that i'm unlearning and i think i'm more authentic but like for the most part i still code switch in law school i like code switch when i'm talking to anyone in authority like i code switch when i'm like at like an internship i code switch when i'm meeting someone for the first time who's like a white person like, you know, all these different times I like I'm code switching so frequently. And so I just, you know, it's not that unrealistic, the amount of code switching that happens in the film. What impact do you think that has on us? I think it's so harmful to our own psyche. Like, I think we do it as a tool of survival, you know, and as a and as, it's just like another strategy that we have for moving in these spaces. But I do think it's. personally I don't know how it impacts other people but personally I definitely feel like it's it's been 
harmful to my like sense of self, you know, and my identity and like feeling happy with who I am and understanding like who I am and, and how, what's authentic to me, you know, when I code switch so often, which is what I've done for these last like eight, nine years of my life, it's like mo more prominently than what, than I did have to in high school. I just feel like it, it makes sense why for so long I didn't understand like who I am authentically, you know, and I feel like I'm coming back to that now, which is why I feel like I'm the woman I've always dreamed I'd be because I'm living more authentically. I'm code switching less. And so when I was code switching often, I just feel like that was really harmful to myself. That's so beautiful. And I, I agree. I think it is really harmful. Like for me, it just has led me to like this existential mindfuck where I, I have to do it so often. And also my work is so important to me, takes up so much of my mental energy and is so like so, so much it's wrapped up in my identity at this point that it's hard for me to know, like, who is the authentic Yvette? And who is the performative Yvette? Yeah. Because work, because, especially because, like, I work so much and, like, like I'm friends with my coworkers. Like, it all, it it bleeds together sometimes in ways that I feel is unhealthy because I feel like, I mean, I, I recognize and know for a fact that I've had to lose a lot of parts of myself in order to succeed in, in this white profession and in these white institutions and of course that's damaging to your psyche. Of course it makes you love yourself less when you feel like the person that you grew up, like the, the person that you were as a child has to be eroded in order to be successful normatively. Of course that has to fuck with you internally. Yeah, and then I feel like it fucks with you when like, when I get comfortable, more comfortable with people, I stop code switching as much. And so like there's been yeah, times same. where people are like, think I'm overperforming my like, non-code switching mm, self mm, and it's just like no 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 mm, i'm not mm. being i'm not being all of a sudden more dramatic or more flamboyant or anything because i'm being i'm like hyper performing being a latina i'm i'm just being yeah. more authentically me this is who i am and the fact yeah, that you like question yeah. that as in like you're being performative is just like ends up being like that hurts <laughs> yeah that's what i'm saying it gets confusing it it's like when people question who you are it makes you question who you are too I agree. So it's a good film. If folks haven't seen it, recommend seeing it. Sorry, we've like spoiled all of it. And for folks who did see it, I hope this we didn't conversation even spoil. Helped. We didn't even share the big reveal at the end. Yeah, true. Oh God, I hate at the end. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I hope this helped folks process the film. I feel like I've definitely had residual need of processing it since I saw it this summer. But anything you want to add, or shall we end and it? Share there? your thoughts with us in your DM. Just that people should share their thoughts with us in the DMs and the email and wherever else. Okay, let's talk about recommendations. Yvette, what do you recommend this week? I rec I'm recommending a movie and a show. The movie that I'm recommending is called Bisbee 17. It's a documentary that follows this town in southern, I believe it's Arizona, southern Arizona, um, along the border, and they recreate a historic deportation that happened 100 years ago. It was really fraught and intense because it was a mining town, and there was labor, or actually, speaking of unions, there was labor organizing that was happening around the mines to increase workers' rights for those who are working in the mines. And it created this huge conflict in the town because basically it was like 
those who were siding with the mining company and those who were trying to unionize. And it kind of ended up roughly falling down racial lines, um, or at least immigrant versus citizen lines, um, because those who were immigrants, many were Mexican and many were Eastern European, were the ones who were organizing. And so the town who sided with the townspeople who sided with the mine decided to deport the immigrants who were unionizing. And it was very traumatic because even though they were, these things were drawn along racialized, you know, migrant versus citizen lines, actually like a lot of family members disagreed with each other. And so like in one of the examples, a brother ends up deporting his own brother. Uh, A man ends up deporting his own brother. And so you see it's this bizarre reenactment that's done by mostly white people in this mostly white town remembering this incident. And you see them grapple with what their ancestors did. And it's a fascinating documentary because it's obviously relevant today. And then Castle Rock, it's a show that's good if you're into the law and supernatural stuff. It's a Stephen King show. And it follows the story of this man who was secretly imprisoned in the basement of a jail with nobody knowing who he was or why he was there. Oh, my God. And it follows, yeah, and it follows this, like, black public defender or... He's a criminal defense lawyer. I don't think he's a public defender. And he's trying to figure out what happened to this man. He's trying to defend him. And you go on this crazy story finding out about his journey. It's really good. It's on Hulu, I believe. Okay. I will just say I saw the trailer for Bisbee. And I was so scared. I was just like, I turned on all the lights in the apartment. I don't know why it creeped me out so much. <laughs> but um, Well, because it's white people deporting people. That's why. I guess. I don't know. But or like reenacting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, So just a heads up if you're easily frightened like me. Okay, so my recommendation is I just started reading the book The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Rothstein? I don't know. And I read like a chapter of it before for this reading group that I did and I really liked it. And I've only read like the beginning parts of it, um, but I'm really enjoying it. I think it's important to remember how intentional like segregation was like and I'm talking about like post Jim Crow. So it's a lot of important history, I think, and it's a bit of a long read, but I recommend it. I, I'm enjoying it, and so if folks are interested in understanding why neighborhoods look the way that they do and why, like, you know, mobility from one area to another is so limited, it's a, this book is, a, is good for understanding that. And then I want to give, like, a general, like, recommendation slash practice to all my repressed Capricorns out there, I posted something earlier in the week about like being a repressed Capricorn and like quite a few Capricorns messaged me and were like, yeah, same, like (laughs) I do this too. And like, I know I'm this way too. And so based on like the horoscopes that I've had for the month of October, it really recommended Capricorns like kind of advocating for themselves and like being like in terms of like our emotional needs and, you know, like what our desires and our fears are. Like it just recommended us to like speak that to others and make it known because that's hard because it requires you to kind of be vulnerable, right? About like what you hope for, what can hurt you and, you know, what would make you happy. Like that's all vulnerability that I'm literally cringing as I'm saying these things, but I'm trying it. I I don't know if it'll work out well for me, but I am trying it. And I think it's a growing process. So I definitely am just like, you know, fellow Capricorns, if you also feel like being, you know, if you have needs and desires emotional that aren't being met, like 
voicing them, like, we can try together and see how it works, and we'll check back in at the end of October. Yay, I hope you and your fellow Capricorns enjoy the vulnerability. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Yvette, it was lovely to spend basically all of my Saturday with you. Um, Oh, yeah, because you're ahead of me, so it's like evening almost. Yeah, but this was good. I really enjoyed this episode. I think us, like... responding to each other and challenging each other is like good you know and it shows the different nuances and the different perspectives folks have and I think ultimately we agree on a lot but just like having that and that process I think was really nice yeah okay well I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and we'll see you in two weeks or hear you I don't know okay bye (laughs) bye Street. And when it's time to bust, they don't get cold